Consider this your first and last warning. If you're listening to this episode in public, put your earbuds in now, because I'm going to be using a word that is going to get you a lot of raised eyebrows, and if you're at work, might even get you called into HR. Hey everyone, my name is Ray Burns, and before we continue with this episode, I just want to take a moment to thank all of my supporters over on Patreon who give their support every month to help Onward in the Faith keep going. I'd also like to say Duje Dakoyu to Zarina for your recent PayPal donations all the way from Ukraine. So if you've been around this ministry long enough, you know that I place a lot of emphasis on the importance and value of words. Words have meanings, words have implications. We don't get too weird and and try to be like Indiana Jones, you know, unearthing all the secrets and the clues and the puzzles and things like that. But we do want to recognize that God's divinely inspired word has led to the Holy Spirit inspiring the the biblical writers to use certain words, especially instead of using other words that they could have used. And so in this episode, we're going to look at a word that, if we're honest, a lot of us have probably read uh, early on in our faith. We might be saying, hey, what does that mean? But for the most part, we see it, we read it, we say, okay, Paul, here's his identifier. Peter, here's his identifier. And we just kind of move on. And we operate under the assumption that, yeah, we, we totally know what this word is. We know it applies to us. We think we know what it means. We think we live it out. But what I want to do is look at, again, a word we're all familiar with. Look at what it would have meant to the original audience. Because, again, if you've been around here long enough, you know that step one in any biblical interpretation is what did this mean to the original audience? And I think when we see what it meant back then, what the implications of it were, what it what it implies, what it didn't mean, I think, really and truly, mostly because I'm speaking from personal experience, that understanding this word can radically change your life and I think help you live the life that Jesus Christ has been calling you to, that maybe you've been dancing around but haven't quite figured out why you're not living it. So, that's a big promise. I don't make promises, but the, the, those are some big words, right? So let's look at what this word is that I'm talking about so that you can be really disappointed at how boring the word is and then be really excited, I hope, once we know what's really going on with that word. So I'm just going to look at a few examples throughout scripture. Um, I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. Now, if you are watching this on YouTube instead of listening on the podcast, On the screen, I'll also show the King James version of the verses that I'm reading. My whole goal with that is really to show how this word has been translated for years and years, right? And there's been a consistency to it that I think has made a lot of us miss out on the depth and richness of what's going on. So without further ado, let's look at the word. So we'll see it first in Romans chapter one, verse one. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. Like I said, this is something we've all seen over and over again. The word servant. That's ultimately what we're going to be looking at, which you probably guessed by the title of of this episode. But Paul frequently calls himself a servant, right? The, The biblical writers refer to themselves as servants. And we can see this same word used elsewhere outside of just introductions. For example... In Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, 
For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Now, for all my fellow people pleasers out there or those that are can get very kind of wrapped up and anxious about the opinions of others, great verse. And again, return to this verse later once we have a better understanding of it. And I think you'll see even more victory as you're able to place basically who you are in Christ over who you are in the eyes of others. But I digress. We see here, though, again, that that we if, if we are trying to please men, then we are not servants of Christ. And of course, we all have ideas or assumptions about what it means to be a servant of Christ. And then the last one I want to look at is in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 22 to 23. For he who was called in the Lord as a bond servant, in the King James it says, or as a servant, is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bond servant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bond servants of men. So again, servant, bond servant, Different word from King James versus maybe more uh, recent translations, but that same idea is there, right? There's this servant language going on here. And in this verse in particular, Paul is kind of taking a duality approach in what he's saying. He's saying that if you were a bond servant when Jesus Christ saved you in the eyes of the Lord, you're a freed person, right? You're a freed man. But if you were a free person, right, legally or, or civically or societally speaking, if you were a considered a free person by society standards, when Jesus Christ saved you, you need to also consider yourself a, as it says, a bond servant or a servant of, of the Lord, of Christ. So again, this is an important word because ultimately, as we're seeing here, as we are going to see later in this episode, this word servant encompasses all of what our identity is, right? When biblical writers introduce themselves, they call themselves servants of Christ. You know, they are not doctors. They are not, you know, whatever their, their title, right? Their descriptor, who they are, what sums them up best is a servant of Christ. Things that they do when, when, when Paul is contrasting things like serving men and pleasing men or serving Christ and pleasing Christ, right? That encompasses a lot of what we do. How we engage with the world is determined by where that identity is. And so what we want to ask is what is this word? You know, is does the word matter? Is servant the best word based on what the original Greek word is and especially how the audience would have understood what that word is. Well, if you actually take a look at the original languages and we've got a lot of programs out there and stuff that can let you easily access these words to where even if you don't know Greek, you can see what that word is in Greek and kind of uh, Latinized or Romanized in its writing. Uh, but we will see that over and over again, this word is is the word doulos. So in the English Standard Version, primarily, whenever the translators would see the word doulos, they would write it as servant. Occasionally, they would do bond servant, as we saw in Corinthians. And then occasionally, they would write it as a slave. 
And so servant, bond, servant, slave, that is the, the different translations that the English Standard Version would use. Now, if we were to look at the King James Version, we see kind of a similar story in that primarily every time the word doulos comes up, it's translated as servant. And then on very rare occasion, it will be translated as something like a bond or a bondman. But again, kind of that similar idea, right? You've got servant, you've got bond servant, and that's typically how we see this single word translated. And of course, translators can't always translate words across perfectly. Sometimes there are specific reasons, the context, the implication and things like that, that might lead them to picking one word over another word. But what I want to challenge us with is something that I was challenged with when I was being discipled. And when I was growing in the Lord and trying to understand my identity, it was shown to me what in the Greek, what this word is best translated as. And as I grew to understand what that meant and the implications and the, the historical context of that word, I started seeing my identity, my, my function in this life, the, the life that Jesus Christ has called me to much, much differently, which is why I want to talk about this. Now, again, that warning I gave you, I'm going to be saying a word that's going to bother people. Just hang with me. We'll, we'll do some clarifying. We'll do some good explaining with the context, with what it doesn't mean. But the word doulos, even though we can see it translated differently throughout different uh, versions of scripture, ultimately looking just at the Greek, that one word has really one meaning, and that is the word slave. Every time we would see, or if we were the original audience and we understood this Greek language, every time we would see doulos, our minds would immediately say, oh, slave. Okay. So let's look at this word again, this doulos word in the passages that we've read, looking at the word slave. And as I'm reading these, or as you're reading them yourself, even think about the implications that, that this word has when understood as slave. Think about what you may think it means with servant and think about how you might better understand it if we use the word slave and how that might impact your life differently. So in Romans 1, we see Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. So Paul identifying himself as a slave. And I'm reading this out of the Legacy Standard Bible, which 100% of the time translates doulos as slave. So here, Paul identifies himself as a slave of Christ Jesus, right? That's, that's his identifier. That's his identity. Similarly, in Galatians 1.10, uh, just looking at the last half of that verse, if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a slave of Christ. So either I can try to please men or as a slave of Christ, I can worry more about pleasing Christ. And then finally, in that 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 22 to 23 passage, for he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So again, here, that word doulos isn't just used as for an identity, but also as a literal function in society that if someone was literally listed, labeled, and owned as a slave... When saved in, in this time, they should consider themselves a freed man 
in the Lord. And likewise, if they were labeled, right, if they were legally a freed man, they should consider themselves a slave of Christ. Now, like I said, I know the word slave, such a loaded term, right? It's, it's, it's offensive. It bothers us, uh, especially with if you're in America or even have any inclination of American history or even world history at large, right? Slavery is bad. And so I want to make just some quick clarifications before we get further into why, as followers of Jesus Christ, we want to be true to what God's word says, even if it might make us a little uncomfortable because of our cultural influences. So the first thing that I want to make very clear is that by using the word slave, by identifying as a slave, by calling people slaves in Christ, the Bible is not making a statement on the goodness or evil of slavery. It's using the writers divinely inspired by God are using modern ideas to express our relationship with Jesus Christ, as well as help us better understand our identity in him. So using the word and what we would clearly argue is a positive light, right? Being a slave of Christ, that's a positive thing. That's a good thing in the writing. That's not saying that all slavery is suddenly okay. So let, let's, let's settle down on what we are assuming is being said here. On top of that, we want to make sure that we are not hanging more meaning on the word slave than the author intended, right? In, in any reading, right? When we're reading Shakespeare, when we're reading uh, you know, Homer's Odyssey, when we're reading a, a history book, anytime we're reading anything, to be responsible, we can't say, what does this mean to me? Instead, we need to say, what did the author intend? There's this term authorial intent saying, understanding who the writer is, the, the context they wrote into their audience and things like that. What did they mean when they said that? And so we want to just be very careful to make sure that we are not making the author say or not say something and instead saying, what did they really mean by that in the best way that we can know as a, a modern audience. And then we want to understand that we are not literally slaves or literally considered freedmen, right? This is metaphorical language. This is what the Bible uses frequently. I mean, this is just what human language does frequently. So when the word slave is used, it's being used in the same way when the Bible talks about how the church is the bride of Christ, we are sons of God. Our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, right? These are known terms. These are known things, relationships, functions, things like that used to convey a deeper truth. They are, it's a, a, a natural way that human beings associate things to say, okay, I know what a bride is. I can understand what that means. I know what a son is. I know what a temple is. But we, you know, we know that as the temples of God, we aren't made of stone, right? We, we don't have fixtures in us. We don't have priests who enter into us to make animal sacrifices and things like that. We know that there are limits to these terms when they are used. And we want to very clearly understand what the writers meant as God was inspiring them to use the word slave to help us identify and understand who we are as followers of Jesus Christ. So 
hopefully kind of getting the, the panic, the discomfort, our modern sensibilities out of the way. What is the context of what this word would have meant to the original audience, right? So when Paul is writing to people in Rome, right, a, a very slave-heavy culture, uh, I think estimates are that at least one third of the population at that time was probably listed as a slave. So, I mean, slavery was a known thing in Rome. So as Paul is writing this, as his audience is reading it, what would they have understood about slaves in that culture and in that society? So this is just going to be kind of a crash course, a quick run through. There's a lot of historical data out there and things that you can read, both written by biblical scholars as well as just, if, if you will, secular scholars, right? There's plenty that can we, we can know and understand about slavery and the life of slaves in, in this Roman Empire. So one thing to understand with slavery is that trusted slaves didn't just sit on a piece of land and be, you know, shackled and chained and all that. They actually lived and did business among free people. So they would go out to the market. They would go take care of things for their master. If they could be trusted and if they had a good master, a good trusting and loving master, that slave would have, if you will, a modicum of freedom to go out and about to, to be amongst the people. And we want to think about that because that's similar to us as slaves of Jesus Christ, right? We are his slaves, but we are not just kind of isolated and, and walled off and just kept in our own little communities, but we are out integrating with the world. We're interacting with those who are not slaves of Jesus Christ. And with that, slaves would also be representatives of their owner. So what they would say or do, how, how they would interact, you know, they would come to, you know, a, a business deal or a transaction or something like that, not on their own, under their own power or under their own ideas, but as representatives of their owner, right? They would kind of bear their owner's name, bear their owner's authority in a sense. Similarly, if those slaves were doing what they should not be doing, right? If they were not doing well, if they were not conducting themselves appropriately in that society, then that would be bad for the slave, but it would also reflect on the owner who sent them as, as their representative, right? And so again, slaves of Jesus Christ, right? We are also called ambassadors of Christ. What does that mean? We represent him, right? We are sent into the world to represent the business of Christ. The things that we do, we do in his name and also how people look at us if we are open about our faith, they don't just look at things I do and say, oh, Ray did that. Ray thinks that. But instead, people knowing that I'm a Christian will say, oh, that's what Christians are like. Or, oh, that's what Christians are like. Right. What I do as an outspoken member of the household of God isn't just reflected on me, but people judge Christ based on my behavior, based on how I act, what I do, what I say. And that's another aspect of slavery that I think was part of what these biblical writers were getting at. And I'm not going to soften reality. I'm not going to apologize for history. Slavery wasn't good. Slavery wasn't positive. There are documentations of slave ba slaves basically just being worked to death in things like mines. You know, masters were cruel. 
hopefully not Christian ones, but we're all sinners, right? We all have sinful desires. And the reality is that a lot of slaves were poorly treated. They were seen as subpar, as subhuman. And when something's not human, right, when, when, we, when we list it as or think of it as property, when we think of it as not as worthy of honor or respect, people are going to take advantage of that. They are going to exercise their power. They're going to use it as an opportunity to be cruel. Ultimately, when we have power over another human being, it really reveals who we are as people, because when we can exercise our will, when we can exercise our desires on another that's really reflective of who we are. And so, yeah, we need to understand that in that society, slaves could have a horrible existence. They could live a few scant years. They could live decades in absolute misery and suffering and could really do nothing about it because they even had methods set up, uh, you know, kind of similar to uh, the American South, where if a slave escaped, it would be known that they were a slave and they would even sometimes have things like collars and stuff that would say, Hey, if found, please return it to this, this uh, property or this residence. And so slavery was not good, but it didn't have to be horrible. It didn't have to be an existence of suffering because ultimately in this context, the quality of life for a slave was not up to the slave themselves necessarily, but ultimately it was up to the kindness of their master. If they had a good master, their living, their lifestyle would be as pleasant as it could be. You know, they, they were still slaves. They still had that identity. They still had those boundaries. There was still that, uh, that, that level of respect and authority and power between the two, but good masters created good lives for their slaves. And as we think about us being slaves of Jesus Christ, we want to say, is Jesus good? Is he perfect? Does he love us? Does he care about us? Does he go beyond probably what any slave master back then ever did? Does he want what's best for us? And I hope we would say yes. I hope we would understand the, the Savior who came to earth, lived a perfect life, died a cruel death on the cross, taking our sins upon himself to set us free from sin, I hope we would say that he's good, that he is worthy of everything in our lives. And so as we think about ourselves as slaves, we want to not be scared of that, not be scared of what that means and not be offended at what that might mean that we lose, but instead trust and rest that if this is true about us as Christians, and we're going to see how this is reflected throughout other areas of the New Testament. But if this is true, that we can be so thankful that whatever we are slaves to, being a slave of Jesus Christ can only be a good thing. And also worth noting is just as doulos has a very specific meaning that is often lost to us, uh, whenever we see things like Lord Jesus Christ, right? When we, when we see Jesus Christ called Lord, that word is kurios, which can easily be translated as master. And again, that shows that, that relationship, that dynamic that we have with Jesus Christ. He is master and savior, Jesus Christ. I am a slave of Jesus Christ. We have that relationship. 
Now, you might be saying, why wasn't it used? You know, what's the big deal? Especially because even if we dial it all the way back to the King James Version, you know, that was not an American-fueled translation. So it's not like they had the the the, the lingering negativity, right? The, the horrible history that America has associated with the word slave. But as I said, slave is is in human terms never a good thing because slavery ultimately boils down to sinful people having power over other sinful people. And while sprinkled throughout history, you might have examples of good and, and kind masters. Ultimately, we as people want to have a feeling of freedom as we understand it. We don't like the idea of masters and Ultimately, for any one good master, slave master that may have been out there, there was probably a hundred, a thousand who were cruel and wicked and evil and brought unjust pain and suffering and death to the slaves that they owned. So ultimately, the word slave is not a, it, it's unsavory, right? It's, it's only negative. And to associate the beauty and perfect freedom from sin that we have in Jesus Christ and, and associating that with our immediate knee jerk thoughts of slavery. It makes sense. You know, the more you get into understanding biblical interpretation, even if you don't understand the original languages, but just kind of the philosophy behind it, you'll find that there is a lot of kind of politics and caution that goes into how things are translated because yes, we want to say what did the original authors mean, but also how are we going to understand that? And so again, this isn't a, a knock on any translators or anything like that. This is just the reality that we live in that when you're giving a Bible to someone who doesn't understand and they're reading it for the first time, maybe they're untrained, maybe they're uh, baby Christians, maybe they're completely unsaved and we see the word slave used positively, yeah, that's going to create possibly a lot more problems than if we just use the word servant, which is close, right? Which can be somewhat accurate and then leave it to people who, to study it out deeper and better understand, okay, if we're looking at the real context and really digging deep, here's what it is. And so, that's ultimately what we're doing right now, right? We've seen the word servant. We understand why it was used, but we want to be careful, but also honoring of what God truly inspired to best understand what that means for us. So understanding why the word slave wasn't used, we now want to ask, which term is actually the best one to use? You know, is there really a difference between a servant or a bond servant or a slave? I think there is. I think if we're really honest, there is. And, and so let's think about the honest implications, right? Thinking about the historical meaning, thinking about the word that we associate and, and the, the, the pictures that we have of these different words. Let's honestly think about what, how we often think about our identity in Christ based on the label that we think that the biblical writers use and therefore the label that we put on ourselves. So if we use the word servant, honestly ask yourself, what is a servant? A servant is an employee. They are someone who is 
hired based on their skills. They are someone who chooses to accept the job offer from their boss. They are someone who is on the clock for a certain time and typically off the clock for the rest of the time, right? Their employer has ownership to a degree of their time when they're on the clock, but the owner cannot ask their servant to do more than they are comfortable with because a servant is free to say no. They will lose their job, but a servant is free to say no. They are, they are equal in, in status, equal in power. One may be paying another to do a thing, but there's an exchange of, of services, if you will. I will pay you, and in exchange, you will do this, right? That's the employer-employee relationship. And if a servant ever gets to a point where they just don't want to, they don't have to. Likewise, an a servant isn't necessarily an extension of the person who employs them. They may represent them, but ultimately they are their own person. They, the employer only has responsibility as far as the servant is doing their job, but they don't necessarily represent them in their typical dealings. And so ultimately, the, the picture that we often get of being a servant of Christ is that we're a servant when we're actually in the role of serving. We might give lip service to this idea that, oh, yeah, you know, I'm a servant all the time. But really think about how we often live our lives. We are servants of Christ. We are actively serving when we mentally say, in this moment, I'm going to serve Jesus. But we don't think about how we belong to him, how we are servants of him when we're watching sports or spending money or you know, maybe talking to our kids or hanging out with friends. We may have opportunities where we act in service, but a lot of times we are independent practitioners of our own lives who occasionally remember who's in charge over us. But if we look at our lives, they don't belong to Jesus, not truly. They may honor him. They may respect him, right? We may want to do things that make him happy, but a lot of times, and this is where I was when I started understanding this, a lot of times we are not fully 100% surrendered saying that nothing about me belongs to myself, that I am not my own, right? We say, you know, I will do this as far as I am comfortable. And if I'm not comfortable, then God, you just have to change my heart so that I feel like doing it so that I like the idea of this. What that leads to, and what we especially see in our culture today is that we then don't need to really worry about the honor and the name of Jesus so much, right? We can have some big things that he calls us to do. You know, he calls us to go to church. He calls us to tell people about Jesus, but we aren't so concerned with the nitty gritty of what he has said. We aren't concerned with the word of the master. And so what do we see in a lot of churches today? What do we see in a lot of people who aren't going to church today? Well, I don't like this. I'm not comfortable with this. You know, I'm going to change it up because this isn't working for me. And so we see a lot of churches who are taking the clear commands of Jesus and distorting them and saying, well, I will do this insofar as I like it, that I'm comfortable with it, that it meets these certain goals or achieves these certain results that I am looking for. 
That is a lot of what stems when we think of ourselves as servants of Christ, right? We think that we are equals with him, that we can say no to things that we are uncomfortable with, knowing, I hope, that we can do nothing to lose our salvation. And so therefore, we only do those things that we like. Maybe we'll push ourselves outside of our comfort zone. Maybe we'll say, okay, Jesus, I'll try this out. I'll give this to you for now and kind of see how I like it. But ultimately, we live our lives for ourselves. We honor Jesus with them. We love Jesus. We want him to influence things in our lives. But ultimately, we only do those things that we're comfortable doing because we think of ourselves as people who are either on the clock or off the clock. People who have the autonomy to say, no, I don't like that you're asking me to do that. So, I will not do that because we think we have a right to do that. We think they have the, we have the autonomy and the authority to say, I know God has said this. I know this is how it has historically been understood, but that's not cutting it today. So I'm going to switch up what God says. I'm going to reinterpret things. I'm going to redefine what he has said to not just match the culture, but ultimately to match my desire to fit into the culture to be liked, to do what I want and not be pushed farther than I deem is acceptable. So that's a lot of what hangs on this word servant. Now you may say, oh, well, I've never thought of it that way. You may have never thought of it that way, but that's because the word servant is so light, so easy that we don't have to wrestle with what it really means for us. It's just servant. It's someone who serves. You know, we think of a nice, clean butler. We think of someone who, you know, goes and runs errands. There's someone who is just standing around waiting to be told what to do. But until they're told what to do, unless they have a laundry list of jobs to do, that servant is free to just live their own life until called upon. And so it's so easy. It's so desirable for who we are as selfish, sinful people who want to wrestle Jesus Christ for lordship and authority over our lives. That, of course, we've never thought about it this way because it's so easy and natural for us to push him out of our lives and set ourselves up as kings and masters of our own lives. Now, that's the issue with servant. Now, if we look at the word bond servant. We're getting closer, right? We're, we're doing a bit better. Now, a bondservant was, as far as I can tell, historically speaking, a fairly broad term. But a bondservant is someone who was either sold by themselves or by others. And the, the goal of this was to cover a debt or maybe just to have the security that the, the bondservant owner could offer them. So if you were someone who was living in poverty, if you were someone who uh, was in trouble and in debt to the, the owner and things like that, your family or you yourself could sell yourself into servitude, right? You could bond yourself to this person or to this family and they would effectively own you. Issue coming though, is that it's this voluntary thing. You're saying, I surrender my freedom to this person. Now, again, like I said, it's close. It's so much better than the word servant. But again, the issue here is, is this accurately conveying how we went from being enemies of God to being the children of God? 
Were we free and did we surrender our freedoms? Did we say, I, I'm giving it up, you know, all the things that I choose for my life, all the things that I wanted, my own identity, I'm giving it all away to Jesus. Now, again, you might say, well, yeah, of course. And if we were to leave it there, that's totally accurate, right? We do surrender to Jesus. We do repent of those sins, right? We turn away from all those things that we trusted in to bring us happiness and satisfaction that ultimately made us enemies of God. But there is an aspect to this that the idea of bond servitude completely misses. And where the word slave, again, unpleasant though it may be, uncomfortable as it may make us, I think truly gets at the relationship that we had with God before we were slaves of Christ and today as we are slaves of Jesus Christ. So a, a slave was purchased, right? They had no freedom before their master. They had no freedom after their master. Their entire life was not their own. They had no freedom. They could only do what the person holding their ticket told them to do. You know, whether it was a company who just owned it and traded in slaves, you know, they had to, to live and do whatever those people said. When they were sold to a master, they then had that, that authority over their lives transferred over to this new master and now had just as much freedom as before, only had to answer to a different person. And so they were owned for life. As soon as they entered slavery, their whole life was gone. For the most part, it was basically impossible for slaves to get their freedom. They were there for life. It was just a matter of who owned that life. And so because of that, they had no freedom and they had no identity. They were individuals. You know, I mean, they're not, you know, hollow uh, robots or something like that. But the reality is that they did not build a life for themselves. They did not, when they, when they transferred to a new owner, say, okay, I surrender all that I had before. The, the life that I was building, the things that I wanted in life, I surrender all of them, and now I am yours. End of the day, a slave never had a life that was their own. And so what we want to ask when we're saying, you know, which term is best? Does it matter? You know, are we just splitting hairs? What we want to look at is uh, of these three terms of servant, bond servant, or slave, which one best reflects how God's word talks about us before salvation and today in salvation and for eternity with Jesus Christ. And we're going to see, obviously, based on how all the talking has been going so far, we're going to see that the word slave truly does help us understand what our identity is, who we are in Jesus Christ, and why, even though slavery in, in secular terms, right, in the world, slavery is a horrible thing, why the implications of that, why the biblical writers using that term gives us hope and joy and, honestly, to a degree, freedom like never before, but only if we are thinking accurately about who Jesus is, who we are, what he saved us from, what he saved us for. 
So let's go ahead and take a look at some of these passages throughout God's word that don't specifically use the word doulos, right? That aren't translated servant or bondservant or slave, but instead talk about us in a way that truly proves, that truly demonstrates that we must think of ourselves as slaves of Jesus Christ, people who have no identity or no freedom apart from what our good and perfect master demands of us. So look at Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Look at that. It's not us who lives. It's not us who defines who we think we are. Whatever we have, whatever moments in this life we have, we live them through Jesus Christ. It is him living through us. It is his orders. It's his marching commands that we follow. We do what Christ tells us to do. And we don't live this life by our own opinions, by our feelings, by our preferences, by our culture, by our traditions. We live by faith in the son of God. And as I've talked about on the blog and podcast, I don't think we've gotten into it on YouTube, but faith isn't this feeling that we conjure up. Faith is saying, what is real? What do I know is true? And then acting on what we know is true. So when we talk about faith in Jesus, it's not this, this feeling, this hope, this, this, you know, jump into the unknown. We place our faith in Christ because we trust him for what we do know. We know about who we are as sinners. We know that we have violated the law of God. We know that Jesus Christ alone can save us. And it's in faith that we say, because I know all this is true, I trust that Jesus alone can save me from my sins. And it's that same trust that we placed in him to save us that we use to live today. We don't live by faith, hoping for the best and not really knowing, but instead faith allows us to live in confidence of who we are because of who Jesus is and what he has called us to do. Now, another one we can look at is Galatians 5.24. Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. It doesn't matter what I want. It doesn't matter what excites me. It doesn't matter what doesn't excite me. I don't get to live based on what I like. Now, hopefully, as God is, is killing that sinful side of me and building me up in sanctification, then my desires are going to match the desires of God. They're going to match the will of of our God. You know, I'm going to want to serve Jesus Christ. I'm going to be excited to see his will done on earth. But even when my heart's not there or, or there's a moment, there's a thing that I know I ought to do, but I don't want to, I don't feel like it. I don't like the idea. This reminds me that I am a slave of Jesus Christ that my passions, my desires, though that, that sinful push I have against Christ is not right. That's not mine to entertain. That does not allow me to walk in obedience to Christ. So whatever I feel, whatever I desire, if it is not matching the will of God, it has no place in my life 
And if you're a follower of Christ, it has no place in your life either. Next, we can look at Colossians 2.20. For you died and your life has been hidden with Christ in God. So whatever you had, whatever desires you had, whatever you thought about yourself, that's dead and gone. And your, your life is now hidden with Christ. You are his and his alone. You are not your own. Now, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20. Uh, now, this is in a broad sense talking about sexual immorality, but same idea here applies. Uh, so it says, or do you not know that your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Now, again, when we see the word therefore, that tells us because of what I just said, this is the action that you need to take. And so it's saying because you were bought with a price, you did not sell yourself. You did not earn your, your way into the servitude, right? Into the enslavement to Jesus Christ. You were bought. You had nothing on your own. You had no, no say in the matter. You were purchased, and because of that, because Jesus Christ bought you with his blood, therefore glorify God in your body because your body's not yours. Your body, your life, everything about you belongs to the one who purchased you, Jesus Christ. So live like that's true. Now, up to this point, you might be saying, well, you know, that kind of sounds like like the whole bondservant thing, right? Because it sounds like, well, you know, my life is not my own. You know, who I was, the life that I had is now gone. You know, I was free before, you know, I had a say in it and I chose to surrender. You know, I took all the freedom I had, all the dreams, all my hopes. And I said, you know, Jesus here, you can have them. And we can make the mistake in thinking that there was some power, some decision on our part where we had authority, we had freedom over our own lives before Jesus. And now we've kind of sold ourselves. We've sold out. We have, we have taken a lesser deal or whatever. What I want to do though, is I want to take that whole idea and show how God's word clearly shows that we have never been free in our entire lives. Now, this episode is not even close to the time to get into it, but this idea we have of freedom is actually a total lie. This idea that we are in control of ourselves, that we answer to ourselves, that we are not controlled by something else, total lie. We were born into slavery, and if the Lord doesn't return, we will die in slavery. The question is not, did we go from no master to who we hope is a good master? But for followers of Christ, we went from a cruel, hateful master who wanted us dead to the glorious master, Jesus Christ, who only wants us to live. And we see this in Romans chapter 6, verses 16 to 23. It starts off saying, do you not know that when you go on presenting yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. Again, you can't serve two masters. 
either you serve sin as you did every single moment before salvation, or today you get to choose. Do you serve Jesus or do you go back and serve sin? Who will you give ownership of yourself to? Who is going to be your master? Who will you be a slave to? This is where I said, it's a total farce to think that we were free and we were happy and we were in total control of our lives, but getting saved, right? Trusting Jesus Christ to save us from our sins is a compromise that we give up our freedoms. We don't. We transfer freedom. We transfer ownership. We transfer our identity and our lives from one source to another source. And that's all it is. So let's keep reading. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, when were we slaves of sin? Before Jesus Christ purchased us, sin owned us. Now, sin's not a person, right? Let, let's not push, push words beyond where, the, where they're intended. But in this picture, we were slaves of sin before Jesus purchased us. We did not have freedom. We were not our own. We've never been our own. Everything we did, everything we thought we were, all our desires, all our passions, all our dreams, even the things that we did that we thought were good, were done in enslavement to sin, to please ourselves instead of pleasing our God. Though you were slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were given over. And having been freed from sin, praise God, we're freed from sin. What happened next? What happened when we were no longer slaves of sin? You became slaves of righteousness from one master to another master. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. Again, Paul's not condoning slavery. He is speaking in human terms, right? He's giving an earthly picture for a heavenly truth. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. There is an end result to who our master is. Before Jesus Christ, we were slaves to sin. That would only lead to lawlessness. And lawlessness means breaking the law of God. And anyone who breaks the law of God, just like anyone who breaks the law of the land, they will stand before the judge. And the judge will render them innocent or guilty. Doesn't matter how much good they've done. Did they break the law? And every single person out there has broken God's law. They are guilty. But we are now slaves of righteousness. And instead of leading to death, instead of leading to making us even further enemies of God, we get to lead to righteousness. We get to be made right before God. And not only that, but that leads to our sanctification, that process that God puts us through, through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, where we go from being, you know, if you remember day one as a Christian, knowing absolutely nothing, having, you know, the, the guilt of your sin paid for, but the struggles of sin sometimes still there. We now get to be sanctified. We get to grow to be more obedient like Jesus Christ, to doing the things that God loves, to, to having the same desires and passions that put us in alignment with God's will. 
we no longer have to fear judgment. We no longer have to fear our guilt. Now we just get to live and mourn sometimes, right? Because we aren't just given perfection. We're given sanctification. It's a growth process. But that's what we get today is we get to grow to be more and more like Jesus Christ in this life, serving him today, knowing that in the future, when we have those glorified bodies, we will be totally set free from any aspect of sin, not just its guilt, but also its influence in our lives. And then going on in Romans four, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. In other words, you didn't have to care about righteousness. You couldn't care about righteousness. You know, Romans also says that, uh, quote in the old Testament, no one seeks after God. Nobody wants to please God. You know, before God came, we may have we may have thought that we cared about the things of God. We may have thought we were doing good things that would impress him. But ultimately, even the good we did before Jesus Christ saved us was done for our own honor, for our own glory, so that we could feel better about ourselves, so we could feel like we were doing something to contribute to how God viewed us. That's the absolute best that we could have hoped for. But not a single ounce of it was truly seeking righteousness because it's only through the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ in being given the Holy Spirit and being slaves of Christ that we can care an ounce about true and genuine righteousness in our lives. Because now, as we are no longer enemies of God, we can care about who God is, what he desires, and seek to please him, not to earn something, but because we love him, because we no longer walk as his enemies, because we no longer hate Christ, we want to follow Christ. Moving on, therefore, what benefit were you then having from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Again, everything before Christ led to death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God. Again, we cannot escape this language. Yes, we were slaves of sin. Yes, we were set free from sin. But now we are no longer free in regards to God, right? Before we were, we were free in terms of having to honor and serve and obey him because we were living as enemies. But now that we've been set free, we've been made slaves to God. He has purchased us through Jesus Christ. You have your benefit leading to sanctification and the end eternal life. Then here's that that favorite passage, right? That that uh, evangelism verse we love to use. But this evangelism verse comes at the tail end of all this discussion about slaves of sin and slaves of Christ. It says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is the reality of my life. This is the reality of your life. You are a slave to something. You were born into slavery. You will die in slavery. Slavery is the perfect picture of what our lives are. Slavery itself is not good, but it is accurate. We do not belong to ourselves. We never have. Before Christ came, we may have thought we were free, but that's because we were living under the deception of worldliness. You know, if you've been keeping up with my Satan series, you know that Satan doesn't really care a whole heap and lot about what you do. He doesn't care if you are serving a false religion or if you have no religion at all. All Satan cares about is that you are not following Jesus Christ. 
And that all boils down to worldliness. False religions come from worldliness. Self-satisfaction comes from worldliness. Everything you desired in your life before Jesus Christ and everything today that you do in disobedience to Christ all comes from the same source, and that is worldliness. Your own pleasures, your own desires, your own satisfaction. We were slaves to those things. Whatever, whatever mask of freedom we thought we had, right? Whatever lies we told ourselves, whatever we felt we had, or if you're still there and you're, you're not a follower of Christ and you think, man, I don't want to give up my freedom. I don't want to give up all this stuff that I have and follow Jesus. You don't have anything. We've never had anything. Everything that we have apart from Jesus Christ has one end, death. Not just physical death, but an eternity separated from the, the eternal life of Jesus Christ. Whatever good this life seems to promise us, before or after Christ, whatever good we think we have apart from him, is complete nonsense. We have to see worldliness. We have to see sin. We have to see the desires of this world for what they truly are. They promise us freedom. They promise us life and happiness and belonging and satisfaction. They promise us identity. They promise us understanding. But the only thing that they can deliver is death, is suffering and misery. I don't care if something makes us happy for a moment. I don't care if something makes us happy for years. The end result of all of it is that it will be burned away. If we're a follower of Christ and we're putting our trust in our job, in our relationships, in having kids and having a successful family life, having a career and being thought well of by this group or, or, you know, wanting to live our lives to hate this other group or whatever it is, whatever we are doing apart from pure and true and genuine obedience to Jesus Christ is putting ourselves under the yoke of slavery to sin. That's all it is. You don't have freedom apart from Jesus Christ. You can be a slave of Christ or a slave of sin. We have no other option out there. And that's why this word matters so much. This word that we may read past, this word that we may think, oh, what's the big deal? You know, this video is however long at this point. You may think, man, there is a lot of time to talk about a single word that at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. It does matter. This word is absolutely transformative for your life. It is. If you walk around thinking that you are a servant of Christ, that just means that you think you have some autonomy. You have some authority in your own life. But you don't. You're surrendering all those areas that you won't give to Jesus you're not holding them for yourself. You're not clutching them really tight and saying, you know, I'll give them up when I'm good and ready. All you're doing is you're, instead of laying them at the feet of your good, perfect, loving, holy savior, you're laying it at the feet of death. You're putting your trust in death. How do you think that's going to work out for you? How did it work out for you before you were saved? What did you earn in all that nonsense and garbage that you chased? Whether it was the most depraved things in all of human history, whether it was just trusting your own goodness and, and doing things that made you happy, that were innocent and people praised you for. How did that work out for you before Jesus Christ? 
The wages of those things was death, was guilt before God. How do you think it's going to work out now? If you're, bro- if you're my brother and sister in Christ, hear me pleading with you on behalf of our master. Stop clutching these things in your life that you turn to apart from him. Stop being afraid that if you surrender something, whatever it is, your finances, your your marriage, your kids, your job, you know, whatever anxiety you have that you that you live your life fearful in, you know, if you if you're struggling with depression because things seem so hopeless because you're putting your trust in all this stuff that keeps failing you, even if you're there and you think, "Boy, my life is great." But so much of your life is not spent dwelling on Christ. Hear me pleading with you to surrender. If you've already placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then surrender those things that you held on to that that shows that you're thinking like God's enemies are, that you are surrendering yourself to slavery to sin instead of slavery to your Savior. You are not free. Apart from Jesus Christ, nothing can offer you true, genuine satisfaction. Take this seriously. Pause this. Turn it off. Throw your phone away. Whatever you got to do. I don't care. Go to your God. Talk to him. Be broken before him. Beg him to forgive you and to give you the desire, the strength to turn away from these things. If you don't see anything, beg for him to show it to you. Because it is so easy for us to to get into this rut of of pushing aside the Holy Spirit, of ignoring him and saying, you know, and, and rationalizing it and saying, you know, I don't need that. I'm just fine. And getting so entrenched in sin that we don't even see the shackles of sin covering so much of our body. Ask God to reveal it to you and to give you the humility to surrender it. Trust Jesus. He will never ask you to give up something that is actually good for you. He may ask you to give up things that make you happy, things that on their own are fine and innocent. But if you know that you have placed something, that you are choosing something, that you are living a life, that you are pursuing something, whatever it is, if there's something in your life that exists because you think that you are master over your own life and you don't want to surrender to Jesus, kill it, surrender it, get rid of it, whatever you have to do, but live your life for Jesus Christ. Now this topic can be heavy, right? I mean, this is, this is a lot of boy, there's a lot wrong with me, but I don't want to end this on just, you know, just beating you down and making you feel bad and making you realize that you're a bad slave of Christ. Because like I said, with the, with the context of slavery, the life of a slave was ultimately dependent on their master. Where we don't want to take this metaphor, right? This idea of, you know, Christians are slaves of sin or slaves of Christ. Where we don't want to take this is that slaves would have known that the life they were living was as good as it could be, but not as good as it really could be, right? Like in the life of a slave, you could only reach so much goodness, but it probably wouldn't exceed the, the feeling of being a free citizen in the Roman Empire. 
But as we see in, in biblical language, as we see in how, especially that Romans 6 passage, as we see how our lives really are. Again, we don't want to push this slave imagery farther than it's meant to be. So instead of thinking, yeah, I'm a slave of Christ, but it'd be better just to be a totally free person. There is no such thing as freedom. So find the hope of this discussion in the reality that you're a slave no matter what. But look at the master that you get. You don't just get a master who's pretty good, who gives you an okay life. And you're not just a slave. Our relationship, our identity is that we are not our own. Our desires don't matter. We are saved and called to live every moment of this day fully surrendered to Jesus Christ, saying, not my will, but your be done, because my will is rooted in sin and selfishness. And we get to serve this Savior. We get to serve this King as citizens of heaven, as children of God. Remember, we want to take the full reality of our identity in Christ into account when we're thinking about all this. Yes, you're a slave. Yes, Jesus is your master. But God is also your father. There's an intimacy there. There is a love. There is a passion. There is a, a personalness that slaves would not get to enjoy. And so fully understand and fully embrace who you are in Jesus Christ. He will never ask you to do something that is not ultimately good. It may hurt. It may be unpleasant. It may be absolutely terrifying. But we are children of God. We have been bought for eternal life. We will live forever in the kingdom of Christ, ruling and reigning with him. We have a future that we're looking forward to. We have an eternity that is guaranteed to us, that is promised us. It's called our inheritance. Slaves wouldn't get an inheritance, but children would. Take those two realities together and ask, how do I live this life understanding that these things are true? And ultimately, when we take both realities together, we find joy in surrender. We find peace. We find freedom. We find understanding. You know, if up to this point in your life, you've understood, yeah, I'm a servant of God. Yeah, I feel like I need to live for God more. But then you look at your life and you're like, man, I'm not happy. I'm not satisfied. I don't, I don't get it. You know, God, is this really all that you offer? No, it's not but it's all that we're taking advantage of. And please don't hear me in some kind of prosperity theology nonsense of if you surrender and live, then you're going to be given great bounty and great plenty. No, look at the lives of the apostles. They surrendered so much to Jesus. They lived by the identity they claimed. Paul called himself a slave of Jesus Christ. Paul was not rich. Paul did not have an easy life. And Paul didn't get to retire. Paul, Peter, the apostles, followers of Jesus Christ throughout history who have fully and truly surrendered to the master and lived out his will as best they could. Not a lot of them met great ends. Not a lot of them were famous and wealthy and prosperous or even healthy. Christ promised us a life 
of a world that would hate us. And many of Christ's followers, and maybe you out there, maybe me, died badly, tortured, executed, mocked, imprisoned. Jesus doesn't offer us a good or easy life by worldly standards. And our desire for that, our fear of not wanting to follow Jesus because we can't have that life, isn't freedom. It shows where our alliances are. It shows what master we're trying to serve. We're serving sin because we want to serve ourselves. We want to serve our our flesh, our desires, our passions. But those have been put to death. They were crucified with Christ. We don't have to follow those anymore. We are free, finally, to follow the will of Jesus Christ. And no matter where that takes us, no matter the hardships that come into our lives, we always get to remember that we live them out, not because we are failures or because the world hates us. We live them out with the joy of living for Christ. Whatever happens, whatever may come, we belong to a good, faithful, perfect, loving, holy master who will never bring undue suffering into our lives, who will never treat us cruelly, who will never forget about us, who will never overlook us, who will never favor one of our, our fellow brothers and sisters over us. Jesus loves us perfectly and fully and eternally. That is the master that has purchased us, purchased us not from freedom, but from slavery from another master, a cruel master, a master who lied to us, who promised us that all this freedom, all this happiness, all the satisfaction and stuff that we chased after promised us that this is what life was about. This is what we were made for. But the end was death. You were made to serve Jesus Christ in this life today, from the moment of your salvation till the moment of your death or your glorification. You were made to serve Jesus. The fact that you are still here, the fact that you are listening to this now, every breath you draw is a clear sign that God is still calling you to serve in this life today. Be excited about that. You get to live for Jesus today. You get to have another day that you get to surrender to him. Don't sit around and feel terrible for, you know, maybe how much time you squandered. Because I know I did that. I was saved for, I think, 11 years maybe before I fully got what was going on with this word doulos, with what it truly meant to be a slave. And it was still several more years as I fought against Christ, as I saw more clearly what he wanted. And through that, he revealed more of what I did not want to give up. I know what it is to feel like you have wasted years of your life in disobedience. I know what it is to be terrified to give up these things, to, to, to have this unknown in front of you saying, what will it look like if I do this? And that's where living by faith comes in. Not just jumping into the unknown and hoping for the best, but knowing that in service to Jesus Christ, you don't know what is coming, but you know that it's right. You know that it's what God calls you to. 
You have confidence because of everything Jesus has proven about himself, about everything he's shown in your past, about everything you know is true about him. That that confidence, that truth, that reality covers those unknowns, covers those fears, covers those moments where we want to give in to our sinful desires, to have just a little bit of our lives that we feel like we control for ourselves. You know, Christ doesn't call us to a life of frowning and, and self-denial and things like that. That's a, that's a whole nother heresy that I'm not going to cover in this one. But if you want to look up asceticism, this idea that God is calling us to beat ourselves, to starve ourselves, that there's more glory and righteousness found in, in suffering and in creating self-denial for ourselves, go look it up. That's a, that's a whole heap of nonsense. Jesus Christ doesn't call us to less. He calls us to obedience. And that's ultimately all it is. You may live a life for Jesus Christ and have a good job, security, safety, a fairly easygoing life, a social circle that generally likes you. It doesn't mean that you failed. It doesn't mean you're a worse Christian than those who suffer. If you're living that life out of pure obedience, not justifying it, not rationalizing it, not saying, you know, oh, you know, God wants me to be healthy and wealthy. No. But if in your obedience and if in your full surrender to the master, if he calls you to a certain life that isn't that hard by comparison to other Christians, then praise God for that. If he calls you to a life of suffering, of having less money, of not having as nice of a house, as giving up your dream job, of not having the relationship that you think you deserve, of you know, not having a, a certain kind of looking family or whatever it is of going somewhere that you're scared to go to, of staying somewhere you don't want to stay. If your life is meant to be one of, by worldly standards, suffering, but you do it out of full obedience to Christ, then praise God for that too. And praise God equally. Because what did Paul say? He said he could do all things through Christ who strengthened him. But read the fuller context of that statement. Read what he said beforehand. And Paul talks about exactly what we're talking about right now. He knew how to have plenty. He knew how to have nothing. He knew how to be brought low. He knew how to be elevated up. The full reality of the whole, I can do all things through Christ and strength who strengthens me is not empowerment. It's surrender. It's saying, I don't care what life brings me by worldly standards. If I suffer, if things are going great, if I have wealth, if I live in poverty, that's not the point of our lives. The point of our lives is not to match some ideal that we have for ourselves, to not sacrifice so much so that we feel good because we are suffering and sad and miserable. So therefore, I guess, glorify God or whatever. Christ is most glorified when his people are simply obeying. Whatever that looks like for you, whatever that looks like for me. And I said at the start of this, I was making big promises that you could have the, the, the walk with Christ that maybe you never had, that you can find full and true satisfaction. Ask yourself now, are you surrendered to Christ? I mean, number one, have you fully trusted him to save you from your sins or are you still in slavery fully to sin? But if you have fully trusted in his sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection to save you from the judgment of your sins and to grant you eternal life, are you today living as a slave to Jesus Christ 
or do you have more of a servant mentality? Are you thinking, I'll do what I want when I want. I'll do some stuff that maybe I'm uncomfortable with, but that's just because I don't want to get in trouble. Do you live as though you have autonomy over your life and you just have certain pieces of your life that you give to Christ and certain bits that you think you hold for yourself? If you do, that is why you are struggling in this life. The, the lack of satisfaction, the, 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 the struggle you have, the misery that you may have, just that feeling where you sit and you say, is this all there is to life? What more is there? Why do I feel so empty? Why do I feel so hollow? Now, hear what I'm not saying, or don't hear what I'm not saying. I am not saying that if you are unhappy, if you are sick, if you're suffering, it's because you're not obeying Christ. 100% no. God doesn't punish you always, or he doesn't, he doesn't bring suffering into your life to hurt you and make you feel bad. But if you are looking at your life and you're just not satisfied, if you're trying to live like the rest of the world, and especially if you've gotten all those things and you said, oh man, if I had this much money, if I had this house, if I had this marriage, if I had these kids, then I would be satisfied. And you're not. Think about what we're talking about. Is it because you need to get more money? You need a more attractive spouse. You need more obedient kids. You need more kids. Is it because you need more in your life? You need to find the secret. You need to chase after what the rest of the world is chasing after. And when you finally find that magic thing, then you'll be satisfied. Or is it because you are a slave who has been called to live this life and you are doing everything else except that? That the Holy Spirit inside of you is not letting you rest, not letting you find that satisfaction that sin and, sl and slavery to the world promises you. Really examine that. Is that why you're not happy? Is that why you're not satisfied? Is that why you keep saying, oh, I really wish I could see more, more victory in my life? It may simply be because you are choosing to live in disobedience, that you are holding on to some aspect of your life, thinking this is mine and this is Jesus's. I want this, but I'll give this stuff over to him. When we surrender all of it, when we rightly understand our identity, then we don't just live the life God has called us to, but we can find satisfaction in all of life's circumstances. You can find satisfaction. You can find joy, maybe not happiness, right? There's not happiness and suffering, but joy goes beyond worldly measure. Joy goes beyond worldly understanding, worldly standards. Walking in obedience to your savior brings a supernatural joy that we cannot explain, that we cannot quantify, that we cannot exhaust because that is what God has called us to. God has called us to living that life of perfect obedience and surrender. Not that we will obey perfectly. We will still fight against our sinful desires. But the more we understand our identity in Christ, the more we understand who we truly are, what he has saved us from and what he has saved us into, then we won't just be servants of Christ who are on the clock who have some kind of employer-employee agreement.
but we will live as slaves of Jesus Christ. Now, I hope that this discussion has been valuable to you. I hope it's been challenging. Like I said, this was a, an absolute game changer for me. And I know that it will be for you because ultimately this gets at what is my identity? Who am I now that Christ has saved me? And there's only one answer. So if this has been valuable to you, um, you know, share it with others, dwell on it, study it for yourself, you know, go through the verses, really reflect on these things, meditate on them, believe that they're true, and then understand how they fit into your life. Now, as I said, uh, I do have people that support Onward in the Faith every month who help me pay for the various expenses involved in this, who help me to, um, you know, make a, a very modest amount of um, a living off of this so that I can spend more time to it. If you would like to to join my supporters, uh, you can make a monthly pledge or do a one-time donation. Um, you can find the links down there in the show notes. But with all that being said, go out and live your life for your Savior, and I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Onward in the Faith. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and visit onwardinthefaith.com, where you can read hundreds of articles about every area of the Christian life. If this ministry is a blessing to you, there are three ways that you can support it. You can pray for Ray and Onward in the Faith itself. You can share this episode with others, or you can help with various expenses by visiting patreon.com slash onwardinthefaith or following the link in the show notes. We hope this episode has encouraged you to keep moving onward in your faith towards maturity in Christ.